Hi friends, welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Lonnie Brooks. Lonnie is a layperson in the Alaska Missionary Conference in the Western Jurisdiction. He's been involved in the United Methodist Church all of his life, but since retiring in 1994, he has devoted his time to serving the church at multiple levels. Lonnie really has seen it all, and he brings a wealth of experience and perspective to the conversation that we're cultivating on this podcast. As we were getting ready to hit record, Lonnie said that his major goal has been to be an agitator and thorn in the side of the UMC. For some of us, that's interesting, and for others, that's annoying. But I believe it actually comes from an extremely genuine place. As I listened to Lonnie, it was clear to me that he thinks deeply about the UMC, he prays regularly for the UMC, and he definitely loves the UMC. You may not agree with Lonnie on some minor or major points, but the truth is Lonnie is still here trying to help us be all that we can be for the sake of the gospel. As we talked in this interview, my respect for Lonnie grew immensely. But heads up, we are gonna go deep into the weeds on some things. So you're definitely gonna need that notebook and maybe a stronger choice beverage. So get ready for a deeply informative episode with Lonnie Brooks. Lonnie Brooks, how are you doing today, sir? I'm well, thank you, Derek. It's my great pleasure to be with you today. Oh man, it's all the pleasures mine. I am so grateful that you're willing uh, to join me on the podcast. Uh, Alaska is a state in, in the U.S., but it still feels like it's a distance away. And so knowing that that's where you are, it just... I feel like it's a huge leap, um, but I'm really grateful that you're willing to join me because uh, I, I do believe that you've got, um, well, I know you've got a ton of experience in history within the United Methodist Church. And I think you will bring some uh, additional perspective to this conversation that we're trying to cultivate um, on Bar of the Conference. Um, I know a little bit about Lonnie Brooks from the different articles that you've written and and things like that, but would love to hear how you became a follower of Jesus, um, a United Methodist Christian, and just the ways God's provenient grace um, had been active in your life to bring you into our denomination. Totally prevenient. Yeah, I had almost nothing to do with it uh, from a from point of view of choice. Uh, I was born into a a practicing Methodist family from both sides, my mother's side and my father's side. Uh, they were uh, members, actually, of the First United Methodist Church, the First Methodist Church in those days uh, in Orlando, Florida, um, and had me baptized there as soon as the pastor was willing to do that. Um, and I grew up in the church. In fact, my earliest memory of anything was of my mother having uh, set me down before I could walk on the floor in the nursery at that church and my crawling in uh, excitedly looking for the blocks and stuff I'd, I was gonna play with that morning. Uh, and uh, many of my memories of, of growing up years were uh, 
around things in the church. And so it was just part of my uh, my growing up and the, the expectations that the family had that I would be in church every time uh, they were there, which is basically every time the doors opened. Uh, and my father, in fact, was a, a singer in a quartet, a gospel quartet, and they traveled all over Central Florida uh, to uh, uh, sings, as they call them, or all day sings, and they would have dinner on the grounds, and I participated in that. Then I grew up in the participating in the youth program there at First Church, and uh, in fact, um, uh, when I decided what I was going to do with my life and how I would prepare for that, I I determined I was going to be a missionary, that I was going into the uh, mission work with the church, and I uh, went to Georgia Tech to study engineering with the focus on going into missions as an engineer. Uh, and when I graduated there, I went to uh, Perkins School of Theology uh, with the idea I needed a theological background for this kind of uh, path I'd set for myself. Uh, however, when, when I was there at Perkins, I uh, had an opportunity to interview a, a staff member of the Board of Missions. And... Uh, after talking with me for about 45 minutes, he let me know that the, the thing that they would have in mind for me to do would be to teach math and science in a high school somewhere in the mission field. And uh, I thought, well, that's really a great mission for somebody, but not for me. I, I didn't see that as any kind of a fulfillment of what I had in mind to do. Hmm. So I decided after some discernment and talking to my counselors there at Perkins that I would leave uh, seminary and, uh, find another mission. And I did that and ended up going around the world uh, looking for oil, uh, uh, oil to replace the energy of human muscle with energy from the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was my focus for 32 years. Uh, and then came back after I retired to, uh, to spend, uh, I'd say, essentially full time work in the church, except as a volunteer. I I don't get paid for what I do in the church. So uh, that's that's where I'm now. Thank you, Derek, for asking. No, um, I'm really, I'm grateful, you know, as a lay leader in the Florida Conference, um, always wanting to make sure we're creating space and thinking about the ways that laity um, can contribute to the life of our church but also being aware that sometimes our system has a way of putting a lid um, on laity as they are discerning and discovering all the things that God wants to do in and through them. So there is um, there's something helpful and even this idea of you having kind of a vision of what you thought God was calling you into and, and we just didn't have the categories yet um, to, to really create that kind of space for you. Yeah, I was probably premature, but and and even as much as the system does try to put a lid on, uh, people sometimes have a way of breaking through the lids. Oh, that that part too. <laughs> so you're in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, serving the United Methodist Church up there. Uh, I'm just curious, like, um, what is the unique sort of context of ministry? In, in Alaska as a United Methodist? We're unique in terms of our size, for sure. In fact, we've had 
uh, clerics come in, and all our clerics in Alaska are, are uh, members of another home conference, and they serve in an associate capacity um, in Alaska. They come in and they look around and they say, is this all there is? I can really do a lot here. <laughs> and you do get that feeling that because we're small, uh, we have a chance to be uh, perhaps uh, more impactful uh, in, in the smaller setting. Uh, you, <laughs> you get to be a bigger fish in a, a smaller pond, I suppose, is one way to look at it. Uh, uh, but I think the, also the, the, the idea that uh, we're, we're still so much of a frontierish kind of a, a setting here uh, gives uh, people a, a sense that there aren't any limits that you have to worry about that uh, what you what you dream is what you can actualize if you have uh, the, uh, the the drive and the skills to go after that dream and you're going to find some people who will support you in that uh, in that process as well here uh, yeah that part may not be unique but it's it's unusual if not unique uh, so that's part of what it makes it uh, what makes it that way Derek I think I am jumping around a little bit, um, and I appreciate you going with me. Uh, um, with the different places that you've lived, have you been able to maintain your connection to the UMC across uh, your travels and living in different cities? Oh, the, the big answer is yes. A tiny piece of that I have to uh, equivocate a little on. But when we're in Calgary, uh, you know, there was an agreement back, I don't know, 100 years ago or so, nearly, I guess, now, uh, that the Methodist Church in Canada and the Presbyterian Church in Canada would merge to become the United Church of Canada. So right. when we were in Calgary, uh, we were not United Methodists for a year and a half, and we were members of a United Church, uh, which is an extremely welcoming church. I was just, we were incredibly uh, overcome, really, with the, the kindness and the welcome that we received um, but during that year, short year and a half, we were United Church of Canada members, not United Methodists, and then resumed United Methodist membership upon coming back to Anchorage. But yeah, when, when we were in uh, Saudi Arabia for, for three months and uh, Canada that all that time, no, we, we were still uh, United Methodist at heart, if not uh, fully in membership. I, I think... Just a little bit you've shared with me, I might be jealous of your passport <laughs> and all the places that you've been. Um, how, you know, it seems to me, you know, it would be easy for a lot of people to just be members of a local congregation, um, but you've been engaged in more than that for decades, right? Like annual oh, yeah. conferences and jurisdictional, even general conference. We'll talk a little bit about the dynamics related to those, but but why? Why, Lonnie? Why give so much time to these spaces outside of Sunday morning and outside of a local congregation? I saw fairly early on in, in my 
uh, work in the church, and I'm talking way back when I was in high school even and becoming very active there in Orlando at uh, First Church, uh, that there were a lot of things that were decided in terms of uh, policy about how the church would operate uh, that were made beyond the level of the local church and that if I were going to have any kind of an impact uh, in uh, what those decisions were going to be, that I would need to be involved at some point uh, in my life in the church beyond the level of the local church. And, And so that became an evolutionary kind of a thing too. Uh, uh, action doesn't always coincide with realization of the need. Uh, and that was certainly true in my case. In fact, we were members at uh, First United Methodist Church in Santa Monica uh, for a time while we were uh, stationed there in Los Angeles. And uh, 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 th- that was, I guess I was in my mid to late 30s at that time. And the, the pastor there uh, asked me uh, if I was ready to be a member of the uh, administrative board. And I told him, gee, Paul, I'd really love to do that. But right now, I'm just, I just feel like I'm too busy. But that was an eye opener for me, that uh, there was an opportunity there for me as a young man, even to become involved. And where I didn't uh, take that chance, uh, which I, I regret now looking back on, uh, with, by the time then I got involved in the church in Alaska, which wasn't that many years later, you know, less than 10 years later, I thought, yeah, uh, I should have said yes to Paul. I didn't. And so now I'm going to start saying yes. And so I did. And it just grew from there uh, into uh, activity from going from the local church to becoming a member of the annual conference um, and then seeing that, well, the the church is bigger even than this and um, being driven to to accept some of the jobs at the the general level. As a layperson, have you experienced barriers to entry and being involved sometimes in, not intentional, I believe, and then maybe even at times intentional, um, just by nature of the fact that the UMC can be somewhat clergy-centric um, at times. Absolutely, Derek, you're, you're uh, right as rain on that. Uh, it is clergy-centric, not only in scheduling, uh, but in uh, format uh, as well. Uh, the uh, The expectation is that that uh, to have an impact, you need to be comfortable in with speaking in public, uh, you know, and uh, half of the members of all these conferences that we're gonna be involved in are made up of clergy people who are in general, that there, there are some exceptions to this, but in general, uh, they get paid to speak in public for a living. That's what they do, right, you know. Right. Yeah. So, uh, unless you're in a, a a lay position like being a lawyer or something like that, usually we're not uh, mm-hmm. trained in that way. And so you have a barrier there to overcome, to, to have an impact on the process. Um, uh, but uh, there, the fact also obtains that uh, 
in our annual conferences, which is defined as the basic body of the church, the clergy are always members. They, they don't uh, have to be elected once a year, once a quadrennium to these positions by having been accepted as members of the clergy. They're members of the conference. That's where their basic membership is. And so they're always there and there is, is power and tenure. Uh, and lay persons don't have this. Um, there, Some of us who are, uh, have worked ourselves into the system so that we usually are there, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but it's different. There is a, a, a tremendous turnover in all our annual conferences of who the lay members are, which is not true for the clergy. Uh, but then true too, uh, in addition to just tenure and being there at the conference, there's also a, uh, a cohesiveness that obtains within the clergy by the fact that they're always there. That doesn't mm -hmm. happen with the lay persons. And the lay people are going always to be seen as outsiders to some degree from this, uh, this uh, camaraderie, uh, cadre, I'd even say, of clergy who run it. In fact, I remember one time uh, in the Alaska conference, we were having a debate over, I don't even remember now what the issue was, but it was something that was significant. And uh, so I got up to make my my speech and the uh, uh, there was a cleric from, not from Anchorage, but from somewhere else in Alaska. Uh, and uh, so he took the floor and basically said, I think now it's time for you to sit down and shut up. I don't oh, have to pick that up. Yeah, so, uh, and I was basically the only layperson who had been engaged in the debate that was in process on that. Uh, so uh, that was as as overt as that uh, bias has ever been expressed, but it was there. Uh, and uh, so uh, we do have to contend with that as laypeople in uh, being effective in an annual conference. So, I mean, that, that story is a lot. <laughs> um, and I can imagine if it were me in that moment, having to mitigate and deal with some personal feelings, even as, um, you know, just trying to stay in the room and, and stay on topic, stay like, keep the focus on the thing that's being debated. And I, I would imagine Lonnie that you've had moments where the debate and just the ways that we, at times, um, that we conference because we're passionate, um, it can get emotionally difficult. And I'm wondering if you have, if that has been your experience and if it has, how have you worked with that? Have you been able to stay at the table um, when passions are bumping into each other in conferencing spaces? It's really difficult to do that, uh, and, and and yet at the same time that we know that it's difficult, we also know that in order to be our most effective, we do have to keep a curb on our emotions to some degree because uh, uh, you you come across as more effective, uh, the and it's counterintuitive, uh, the less passionate you are in in certain. Uh, Ways now, now mind you, there is a time and a place uh, for expressing the passion, 
that goes with the uh, with the the task. Uh, but in in most cases, uh, I, I find that it's it's better to keep that to a minimum in presenting the idea and focus as you as you indicated uh, in in the question, uh, focus on the issue rather than the people. The, that's, uh, in fact, I have a, a, a kind of a, a mantra that I uh, uh, refer to from time to time, that uh, a good idea is a good idea regardless of the source, and a bad idea is a bad idea regardless of the source. And as long as we can focus on the, the merit of the, of the idea being presented rather than the, the identity of the person who's presenting the idea, the more effective we're likely to be in terms of uh, promoting the, the concept that we're uh, supporting. I'm gonna hold on to that. Lonnie, you've uh, watched the United Methodist Church literally take shape, um, at least the United Methodist Church that we we live in, you've watched it take shape during your lifetime and tenure as a leader. And we'll talk specifically about some, some things that have happened over the years, particularly at general conferences, but I'd just love to hear your thoughts on the structure of our church. Um, the, 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 the way we connect to each other across the planet. And I just love some just general thoughts of both its gifts, but also its challenges from your perspective. I have watched the, the church take shape. In fact, um, uh, the, uh, the Methodist church itself was uh, born only a year before I was in 1939. I was born in 1940. Um, and, and then uh, just a few short years later, 1968, uh, we created the United Methodist Church. And, and I, was, I was living in California, happily engaged in my work as an oil exploration geophysicist uh, when that happened. But, you know, significantly involved in the church on the local church level. Uh, at that time, but fully aware of what what was happening in the church, that we were creating a new thing here uh, uh, from the, uh, uh, the the Evangelical United Brethren Church and the United and the Methodist Church coming together to form this new entity, the United Methodist Church. Um, and uh, of course, one of the celebrations that that I I certainly uh, was part of. Uh, in in terms of how I felt about it, at least, uh, was that with that uh, with that merger, uh, we did away with the central jurisdiction, which had been the shame of the, of the area of the country in which I grew up, uh, uh, down in the southeast, uh, which the, the central jurisdiction was essentially the old. Uh, Methodist Episcopal Church South uh, encapsulated in that one region of the country. Hmm. Um, and th that was basically the original sin of the, of the Methodist Church. Uh, and I had, I had not 
realized that as a as a, as, a, as a young boy. But when I entered entered my teen years, I began to be exposed to to what that that meant in terms of discrimination and exclusion, and uh, so I was <laughs> I was ready uh, as ready as any person can be uh, for that to come to an end. And of course it did nominally, uh, although that's not to say that dis discrimination came to an end with the, the end of the central jurisdiction. We're still struggling with that today. In fact, I see that as one of the things that, that remains for us to do. Uh, you know, I, I, I see uh, looking forward as, as much as we've uh, we've come, we haven't come far enough. And I think that the jurisdictional system that was created in 1939 to enshrine uh, the separation uh, was flawed, terminally flawed. And I don't think that we can go forward with the jurisdictional system uh, with a full sense of commitment to ending racism. I think we need to do something different. And um, that's what I think the value is in the proposals that are before us now uh, for uh, regionalizing the United Methodist Church uh, in a different sense, in a, in mm -hmm. a completely different way. In fact, the, the heart of the, the proposal is to... Uh, do something uh, similar worldwide uh, that we have, at least to some degree, with the uh, central conferences that we're going to. Uh, the proposal is that we turn the central each of the central conferences into a regional conference, and that we uh, make a regional conference um, in the United States. And I think we need to take that piece a step further and uh, replace the jurisdictional system with regional conferences within the United States. Um, I don't think we need to have five of them. I think we need a, a more modest number than that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and put that, uh, that whole idea of uh, jurisdictions uh, behind us where it needs to be. Wow. Lonnie, you're giving me all the thoughts here. Um, so much to think about there. How, what is it like in the Western jurisdiction as it exists today for you in Alaska? And, and you know, I'm interested in that geographic distance, um, you know, just the ways that often um, I hear people talking about the lower 48 when I connect with my other friends in Alaska and just that that geographic distance. And then I imagine because of the context of what it is to do life and ministry in that state, it looks drastically different from doing ministry, say, in Southern California. Um, and so, or even, or even in Seattle, right? Like, so what, what, give me a little bit of what that is like to engage on the jurisdictional level from where you sit in Anchorage. 
there's some real challenges here. Uh, we have a very limited road system in Alaska. So uh, we have many of our uh, churches that are located in places where there, there is no ground transportation uh, for most of the year uh, uh, from Anchorage to these uh, places. Uh, you can fly in there, you can boat in there, but you can't drive into there. Um, and in fact, uh, that's true of, of the capital of the state. Juneau is not accessible by road from Anchorage and um, almost all the southeast region of the state is not accessible by road. Uh, so we've got those challenges. Um, I, but despite the challenge that, that's there, uh, we have in Alaska, we've seen the handwriting on the wall, as it were, that uh, ministry in the, the way that we've conceived of it in the past uh, of having uh, Alaska as a separate conference is not sustainable into the future. Uh, and so we've launched ourselves on a path uh, of, of becoming a, a district of the Pacific Northwest Annual Conference. We went through a period of discernment, a long period of discernment. I'd, when I say that, I mean like over 20 years of, of, of coming to the realization and then deciding uh, that that's actually what we wanted to do and how to do it. And what conference should we be uh, uh, allied with and and become part of, and we had uh, leaders in Desert Southwest and, you know, Phoenix and Southern California saying, well, we'll take Alaska if, if you want to join us. But uh, for reasons of affinity from and uh, kinship from long past, uh, we settled on Pacific Northwest as where we'd like to go. And they've, they've been welcoming and supportive. The obstacle that we faced was primarily um, – uh, as it so often is institutional, uh, because uh, a missionary conference, which is what we are, can only be created, which means also uncreated, by the general conference. So we have to have a general conference approval before we can dissolve our status as a missionary conference and then be uh, aligned within the boundaries, new boundaries set to put us as part of the Pacific Northwest Conference. Um, and of course, we haven't been able to hold a general conference. So we haven't yeah. passed that barrier of having general conference approve it. We, we've got an assurance from the General Board of Global Ministries uh, that uh, has some oversight responsibility for missionary conferences uh, that they will support our, our proposal to general conference to change our status uh, so that we can become a district of Pacific Northwest Annual Conference. And now we're going through what we call here in Alaska our uh, uh, living into becoming a district uh, as we uh, seek institutional approval for that change of status for us. So we're we're increasing our our cooperative work even as we're uh, waiting uh, with PNW, and uh, we're having. Uh, uh, folks from Alaska now serving on some of the boards and agencies in, in Pacific Northwest, uh, getting ready for the time when we will be there. We'll still have the challenge of, of distances. And in fact, in, in one sense, it'll be a, a more of a challenge because uh, when the annual conference time comes, we've got uh, our 
between 50 and 60 lay and clergy members from Alaska that we'll either have to get to Seattle or somewhere down there where wherever the, uh, they choose to meet, or we'll have to think of a new way to be in conference. And of course, we're open to those ideas as well. Uh, there might be some opportunity for us not to be physically present so much as uh, um, electronically gathered. Uh, we're open to those ideas. Still, still exploring. You know, I, I think this is obviously a unique uh, situation that you all find yourselves in. But I, I just wonder, as we continue to evolve uh, over the next uh, few years, in what ways might we be learning from Alaska's living into moving from being an annual conference to a missionary conference to a district? Um, in what ways are y'all giving us lessons uh, and uh, things that we can learn from um, across the connection? So I appreciate you sharing all of that. Thinking about the general conference and we'll talk more specifically about what what's happening right now, but um, as I was getting ready for this interview, um, I had not realized how closely connected you were to Plan UMC that came before the General Conference in 2012. Um, and so to the degree that you wanna share and feel free to only share so much because I, 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 I'm aware of how Plan UMC kind of uh, how it came to an end, unfortunately. But can you give me a little bit of your your interaction and leadership with that plan and and what you had hoped it would bring to our denomination? I'd be delighted to do that, uh, Derek, because I think that's an important um, piece in um, the, the process that we're engaged in now even. Um, as we uh, seek a way forward uh, for our for our church, um, Plan UMC was a, a development that really began with the decision of the connectional table uh, to come forward with a new uh, structural plan for the general agencies of the church and. They formed what they call the interim operations team to put together a plan, and that was a, 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 a focused effort to reduce uh, expense, but increase accountability and to, uh, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, focus uh, leadership in a new way. In, in fact, what they actually came up with, uh, with the interim operations team plan, IOT we'll call it, as it was called then, the IOT plan was to uh, have only one board of directors for all the general agencies combined um, and um, uh, have a, a person at the top of that structure then uh, functioning as a chief executive, um, 
it, it a lot of people in the United Methodist Church uh, don't even know we don't have a chief executive, you know, which is unique. If, if I was involved heavily in the ecumenical work of the church for a long time. And hmm. Virtually every other church that we deal with has someone at the top that is identifiable as a uh, head of head of communion. That that's usually the word that the the, uh, the phrase that's used to designate and identify that person. Well, the fact is the United Methodist doesn't have a head of communion. Uh, for some purposes, when we're talking to the Presbyterians or the Lutherans or anybody else, we say, well, you can kind of think of us as the president of our council of bishops as a head of communion, but not so you'd really notice if you're inside the church. But, yeah, if you can call him if you want or her or whoever it is. Um, so we didn't have that. But uh, the IOT plan was to create that, that position uh, as well as consolidate leadership into one board. Well, there were there were several of us who were looking at that, and they said, there's some real merit in some of this, but one board for 13 or 14 agencies, I can't remember for sure which number it was right now, but uh, for that many boards might be a bit extreme. Can we come up with an alternative that has uh, the best of uh, what we saw in the IoT plan, but perhaps uh, softened some of that uh, around the edges. And so we came up with a an alternative that we wanted to propose, and we called it Plan B because we couldn't think of a better name, really. Just, well, that's Plan A. We'll call this ours is going to be Plan B. Mm. So we went to a general conference then in 2012 with, uh, well, the, the, there, there were basically these two plans, but there was another group the uh, Methodist Federation for Social Action also came up with an alternative plan that was sort of uh, between the two. It wasn't as extreme uh, in consolidation as IOT plan, but it, it was it was significantly different from plan B as well. So we had those three plans then that uh, found their way to conversation then at the General Administrative Legislative Committee where all these plans ended up for conversation. And our strategy then with Plan B was to uh, very early on, as early as we could get the floor in that legislative committee, to move our Plan B as a substitute for the motion that was there to adopt the IoT plan. And uh, with very little conversation and very little discussion of it, that uh, motion carried. And Plan B was substituted for the IoT plan for conversation on the floor then um, at that uh, legislative committee. That was as easy as it got. It really bogged down from there. <laughs> yeah. The legislative committee really got mired in the details of trying to perfect that plan then mm. to the point that we came to the end of it with no plan coming out of the, of the legislative committee proposed for adoption by the plenary. Hmm. So then um, the, those of us who were supporting Plan B and those of us who were supporting the IOT plan said, we got to fix this. We cannot go. And we had several of the bishops coming and saying, you got you got to do something here. So uh, in the time-honored way of the smoky back room at General Conference, uh, the, we had selected some leaders from both the two plans, uh, the Plan B and IOT plan, and we got together and we just all night for two nights in a row, 
we just worked together and we said, we're going to do this. And uh, I drew the straw to come up with the, the draft of what it was going to be. And so it was, it was I had, I had drive, I had done all the, the writing work on plan B to start with. And so that was, that was not an easy step, but we said, that's the architecture we'll use. We're going to take these parts of the IOT plan. We're going to merge them into the plan B. And the we, in this case, it was me. I had to do that. Yeah. And Neil Alexander, who was a member of the IOT uh, group, uh, uh, made the resources of the United Methodist Publishing House available there. And we just sat there all night putting this thing together. Mm. And uh, that was then the plan that was presented to the conference and was fairly resoundingly adopted by the conference. It wasn't really very a very close vote. It was um, by a significant margin, not maybe not two-thirds, but close to that, adopted. And then, of course, as you know um, from the history, that the Judicial Council then came in and made its uh, ruling that it was not constitutional on various, various grounds it cited. Uh, the surprise to me in the ruling, I wasn't actually surprised, uh, was that rather than do what the Judicial Council normally does and say, this piece is unconstitutional for this reason, and if that gets fixed, you know, this is going to be all right. They didn't do any of that. They just said it's unconstitutional. And the, the message was, although it wasn't ever said, articulated directly, because we don't have time to fix it. Kind of thing. So we, so it just was abandoned, much to the uh, to the detriment of the church. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some of the uh, consolidations that were proposed in the agency structure of the church in that plan uh, would have uh, uh, helped the the church adapt more easily to what we're facing now because of the of the budget crunch that's coming you know we've got a proposal from the uh, general council on administration uh, finance administration gcfa to reduce the budget by as much as 30 percent from the previous budget which we adopted back in 2016 uh, even the connectional table is saying is there needs to be a significant reduction well no organization can go through a 30 percent budget cut and come out the other side looking the same it's just not going to be the same and I think what we're going to end up with is structure that looks a whole lot like what was proposed in Plan UMC, the merger of Plan B and IoT Plan. I cannot imagine all the time and energy and work and conferencing in the most ideal sense and conferencing in the most difficult sense. I can't imagine all that it took to bring a significant piece of legislation to the floor to see it pass and then to hear that it's not constitutional. None of it, none of it's worth working on or 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 perfecting it, it it and for whatever reason and then you're you're still here lonnie <laughs> um, yeah well there have been some encouraging things along the way you know uh, 
Robert Schnazy, Bishop Robert, Robert Schnazy, um, was one of the people who was one of our champions there. And yeah, he, in one of his publications, I don't even remember which book now, uh, said, uh, you know, in 2012, we had a bold new plan for restructuring the church that uh, was struck down by the system. Um, and when you hear things like that, you think, yeah, he's talking about me. <laughs> wow. So there's some encouragements. Let's take a quick break. Lonnie, remind me, were you a General Conference delegate uh, to the special session in 2019? I was not. I was a, a First Reserve lay delegate. Uh, however, that was almost simultaneously with my diagnosis with lymphoma. So I was not able to go uh, physically mm. to St. Louis to join the festivities. I, I had to watch it on TV, <laughs> which I did. I was... Uh, even though I was sick. In fact, I was I was in, in the process of uh, getting ready that morning to go, to get on the airplane, to go to St. Louis when I looked at my wife and I said, I'm really sick here. I, I don't think I can even get dressed. And uh, I was throwing up and all kinds of things. And it turned out that this, the cancer was concentrated in my stomach. So uh, uh, I, I had to call the airline and tell them I wasn't going to show up. Uh, so that that was the first ant, the general conference I had not attended uh, since 2000. I've been at every general conference since then, mm. uh, except wow. for 2019. Wow. And um, prayers for your continued health and recovery. And thank you. According to my oncologist, I'm uh, in complete remission right now. So praise God. Good for me. Thank you. So I cannot imagine what it must have been like to watch those proceedings from where you were and all that you were personally uh, dealing with. But in the midst of all of that, when the traditional plan passed at 2019, the special session, what were your thoughts? What were your feelings? I was mostly lament because uh, I didn't see that that resolved much of anything. Uh, uh, what uh, most of us who have been close observers of the process had been hoping was that the uh, the way for the commission on a way forward would come to the church with a plan, and so there was great disappointment in the circles in which I was moving and working at the time over the fact that they came forward with three plans, you know, the traditional plan, the one church plan, and then the connectional conferences plan. Uh, and uh, uh, although I, I saw some, some flaws and some weaknesses uh, among those three, I, I thought that by far the, the one that the church would profit most from would be adopting the one church plan so I was I was disappointed as were most of the people that I I I've worked closely with for a long time in the church uh, over the fact that the traditional plan was adopted. Uh, like many people, I had uh, analyzed uh, all three 
to to great this great extent anyway and i was i was convinced that there were some significant uh flaws in constitutionality with the traditional plan um and of course immediately it was well even before it was adopted there was a question for the judicial council about its constitutionality and much of it was declared to be unconstitutional but there was a whole lot of it uh, that was adopted that um, strengthened the the church's stand against uh, ordaining and appointing LGBTQIA plus people, as well as prohibiting our clergy from conducting same-sex unions and weddings. Uh, and so that was a disappointment. Uh, I, I never expected that. Uh, and as a centrist, I've, I've never uh, been uh, fully supportive of, of the idea of requiring that our clergy uh, marry uh, anybody that to whom they object. And, and up, up until the uh, prohibition was adopted against our clergy performing same-sex uh, unions, uh, the, the discretionary authority for deciding whom uh, a, a cleric should, measure, should, should marry has always rested with the cleric. Uh, it's been every pastor's uh, prerogative to decide whether he or she will conduct that wedding or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and we changed that with that uh, one, one uh, point. If, if they're, if they're same sex, you can't marry them. Uh, so I, I never expected we would go uh, to the point of, uh, or, or had hoped anyway, that we would go, had not hoped that we would go the way of mandating that a cleric uh, marry somebody. But what, what I had uh, hoped all along was that we would do something like what uh, uh, Adam Hamilton had proposed, oh, I don't know, it's probably 20 years ago now, when he came forward with his proposal for a way forward, that's what he called it, uh, uh, which was uh, essentially a local option in, in case of uh, each clergy, each clergy person would have the very local option, what he or she would do so that, uh, uh, and, and he left it somewhat open, the idea of what local meant and, you know, how big of an area is local. Uh, but anyway, that would not be a general conference, that we'd make decisions uh, on uh leaving it to bishops to decide uh, uh, who's going to be appointed, leave it to annual conferences to decide who's going to be ordained, and leave it to uh, uh, pastors to decide uh, who's going to be married, and the local churches whether or not they would host uh, these kinds of weddings. So that's where many of the people with whom I was most closely in contact with had hoped that we would go well. That's not where we went, and uh, the adoption of the of the traditional plan and the survival of the traditional plan, the pieces of it that did survive the uh, the review by the judicial council, uh, were were a step backward. We we made it more difficult for uh, clergy to protest uh, and uh, to stand alone in their their individual choices. Now, mind you, fortunately, from my point of view, fortunately, and, and I say that with some reluctance, 
because I am committed to the way of law <laughs> rather than the way of humans in, mm -hmm. in how we're governed. Uh, but I, I see that, um, that we've been boxed into a corner with no choice uh, but to uh, uh, be in some form of ecclesial disobedience uh, with respect to a full inclusion. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are uh, intentionally and openly uh, not complying with these with, with these new restrictions uh, in much of the church. Uh, and of course, the, that's not exactly a new thing. We were not in compliance before the adoption of the new restrictions either. But uh, in any case, uh, uh, that's really where we are now uh, with much of the church in open defiance of the current stand of the church, hmm. uh, which which causes huge stresses on the system. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's totally uncertain right now how we're going to resolve that. What we know is that the church is in the process. We don't have to say the church is going to. The church is in the process of separating. And it doesn't matter, in my point of view, whether you call this a, a schism, a separation, or a splintering. It's all the same. The church is dividing whatever we choose to label that as, uh, and uh, it will it will not ever be the same again. We we know that we we don't yet know what the shape will be going into the future of the as it's sometimes styled using the language of the protocol the post separation United Methodist Church. We don't know what that's going to look like yet. We know it's going to be smaller. Uh, and we know it's going to be different, but we don't know in what way, for sure. Lonnie, the the plan that passed in 2019 is called the traditional plan. You've identified yourself as a centrist. Um, there are folks who put me in the progressive camp. Um, are these labels helpful as we're trying to figure out where we're going as a denomination in your view? You know, I do find some, some utility in these labels. And the, the thing is, uh, I think they're helpful in that they, they identify something about a population. They are not helpful in terms of identifying a, a any individual in that population, but it, it's helpful in in terms of the general trend of a population. It, it is it is it is useful to think in terms of there that there is a segment of the church that is on the progressive end of a spectrum, and that there's a a group that's on the traditional end of a spectrum. And that where there are two ends, there are going to be a middle, and you're going to call them something, and calling them centrist is 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 useful. Now, mind you, when I identify myself as a centrist, I'm just saying I'm kind of in that population that's in the center between the two ends. But uh, the the truth is that uh, if you get into the details of my um, my theology and my polity. Uh, you'll find that I'm a creature that nobody would accept on either position because 
in, in some respects, I am more progressive than most of the people who would self-identify as progressive. And I am more conservative than many of the people uh, in some respects on the other end of it would identify themselves as being. Uh, and and I'm, I'm a creature that's not even supposed to exist. I'm a, a, uh, a political and in some sense, social conservative, but theologically, uh, most, even some of the, most of the progressives, I would say, would consider me a heretic way out on the other end. Mm. So. I, I'd love to bear that out a little bit. Um, I, I think that there are people who would agree with you and feel sort of an affinity of um, either being too progressive or not progressive enough for the progressives and being way more traditionalist or not traditionalist enough for the traditionalists. But it's that, that feeling of like not really having a camp. But is there an example of how that's kind of been how that's happened for you, how that's borne out um, in the last few years of, of our church conflict? Yes, uh, I think uh, the, the details of that are that um, I find myself uh, not really accepted by either end. I'm uh, considered by most of the progressives to be uh, too conservative. And by most of the conservatives, I'm considered to be way too liberal. And they, they're looking at pieces of me rather than the whole of me when they, when they make these judgments. Uh, the, uh, the progressives uh, see me as a, as a registered Republican and that they don't like anything to do with anybody who's a Republican. And of course, in uh, uh, in some ways, many people who are not uh, in the part of the Republicanism that I would identify with think if you're a Republican, that means you're a Donald Trumper. Well, you know, that's as far from the truth as it could be for me mm-hmm. and for many of the other people that I know in the, in the Republican circles within which I move. Uh, and... Uh, on the uh, conservative side, uh, the conservatives would see my theological position with respect to uh, uh, their position on, on use of scripture as way, way too liberal to suit them so that, uh, that I would be totally unacceptable. Uh, so I'm, I'm as far as you can be away from biblical literalism and uh, uh, rigorous in that kind of interpretation of the use of scripture. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's the way in which I see myself not fitting either camp. Yeah. <clears throat> do do you do you mourn that? Do you wish it were different? Is that kind of the way you like it? Um, how does that land for you? I find myself having been reconciled to it and uh, comfortable with with. Uh, where I am uh, in that regard. Uh, I, I'm not unhappy uh, to be a loner. And, and it kind of goes with my, uh, my basic orientation uh, on, on the, uh, w- whether you're 
an, an extrovert or an introvert. I'm very much of an introvert. You know, I'm really comfortable sitting in my office here working on legislation and working on judicial processes of the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, th- that, th- that is the, the place where, where I live and work, and I like it. Uh, and uh, I, I, the fact that I'm not accepted real well in either end of the spectrum is, is not a concern for me. I appreciate all this sharing, Lonnie. Um, I have been so grateful for this podcast and the ability to have conversations with people um, often about their stories and the stories that they're taking with them into the bar of the conference uh, in 2024, or just the stories that they're holding, whether they're going to be a delegate or not. and so often there is this line, I think, where the labels just don't fit. Um, And not always because we're trying to push against anybody's framework, um, sort of like how people could push against the compatibilist language and things like that. I don't think that that's so much it, but I do think that so much of where we are is personal and there you don't have a label for the personal necessarily um it's been the journey that you've been on and it's where you land on very specific parts of who we are not just as united methodists but as as human beings so i appreciate you sharing all of that um i did want to pick up one piece of what i heard you say about the ways that our church, and I believe the word you use is in defiance of the traditional plan uh, at the moment. The traditional plan being what is the Book of Discipline primarily. Um, It's in the Book of Discipline. And do you see actions being taken uh, directly against those prohibitions? If you just, speak a little bit more to those, to that sense of defiance of- Oh yeah, sure, I'm pleased to do that, uh, Derek. Without naming any names, I know that uh, there are, um, in fact, I would say even most, not just many, but most of the clergy who serve uh, in the Western jurisdiction, and we're not the only one, there there are other parts of the church, are openly uh, making themselves available for performing same-sex unions and, and weddings. Uh, as they're permitted to do. I mean, that's the law of the land now. The United States uh, has equalized marriage for uh, gay and lesbian people as well as for straight people. And and that's being done openly, and I'm going to say defiantly, just use the same word again. Uh, and moreover, uh, when when charges are brought, uh, which they, they have been, the, there has been no moratorium. There's been a lot of talk about moratoria, but there's none in place. You can't find a letter that the Council of Bishops has ever issued saying there's a no moratorium. Doesn't exist. Hadn't been declared. But nevertheless, uh, when charges are brought, our bishops are just sitting on them. They're not. They're not acting on them. That's a defiance because the judicial council has declared that they have to do this. Well, they say, well, 
how are you going to enforce that judicial council? And they can't. They don't have any enforcement mechanism. So yes, the bishops are in defiance of um, of this uh, this requirement that they prosecute as uh, these charges as when they're brought. They're not. They're not doing that. Mm -hmm. now, and many and of our churches are making themselves open. You know, that's a part of the ban. The mm -hmm. ban is that you can't do this in our churches. Well, that's not that's not being done either. There are many of our churches are open to performing these. Uh, Weddings. And again, we have openly gay people serving in clerical positions. This is defiance. My bishop is openly a gay man, mm -hmm. you know, and he's not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> we have two of them out here in mm -hmm. the West. So, mm -hmm. yes, we're in defiance of this, of this man. Is this, using the word that you used, this defiance? in your opinion, the best way for those of us who disagree with the traditional plan to respond to it? In this particular case, I would say yes. I, uh, I, now, mind you, uh, that I, there's a little point of discomfort for me with this, to, and, and it's only a small point, uh, and it's mostly theoretical rather than practical. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the uh, there's a long history behind the concept of civil disobedience. And we're talking here about ecclesial disobedience in parallel to civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. And part of the formula, and Dr. Martin Luther King uh, endorsed this part, and, and he lived it himself, is that, yes, you have to, to point out that this is a bad law. I'm not going to obey this bad law. But then the next step is in the formula you take the punishment hmm. that the law measures out. By and large, in in our current wave of ecclesial disobedience, we don't like the idea of taking the punishment very well. Hmm. So we've we've found a way mostly to get away from that. And I'm okay with that. In mm -hmm. theory, I still like the theory of the way it was expressed and the, you know the way it came to us from from Gandhi and uh, Thoreau before him and King after him. I like the theory, but right now we have been left no choice. Mm. And so I'm comfortable where we are in our defiance now. Yeah. Get, get away from the punishment if you can. Yeah, I appreciate that take, I do. Uh, well, let me take it to the other side of it. Um, Traditional plan passes. The traditionalist, primarily represented by the WCA, I think get, end up getting the message that most of the US portion of the UMC is not happy about it, not interested in receiving it and accepting it. And you know, fast forward through all the things over the last few years, the GMC launches in May of 2022. In your opinion, is this the best response for traditionalists? I think the answer, the short answer is yes, but I don't want to leave it with the short answer if that's all right. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the traditionalists, and, and many of these folks are, are people I've worked with for a long time in, in the 
uh, halls of the church uh, and, and very congenially worked with for a long time. Um, uh, they introduced what became paragraph 2553, the exit plan uh, for dissenters, uh, as a path out for progressives. I'm not making that up. That is exactly how that came into be in the Book of Discipline, that the traditionalists who held the power at the General Conference said, we need to give the progressives a way out so we can have the church that we're building here with our adoption of the traditional plan. Because when the first vote came on prioritization of those proposals, it was clear to anybody who was really paying attention that the traditional plan would prevail from the very first vote. We knew that was going to happen. And so they were preparing the church as they wanted it to be, which included an exit path for progressives who were not content with what that church would look like. Within weeks of the close of General Conference, it became clear that that had misfired because we would not. And, and what, what really was the death knell there was that uh, the centrists, like me, and like Adam Hamilton, joined the progressives and we said, this was an abomination. We will not abide by this. We are not going to continue to exclude our gay sisters and brothers from the, from the participation in the church. And whatever we have to do, that's what we're going to do to, to defy this plan. And so the traditionalists very soon saw it's over. We lost it. We got to leave. And, and up to that point, they thought they were going to stay. They thought they would be the ones to stay and that the very path they created for the progressives to leave was the one they needed to take. And so, yes, the launch of the Global Methodist Church was an inevitability, as it turned out, we couldn't have seen it ahead of time, of, of the adoption of the traditional plan at 2019. Yeah. Um, and it's so interesting just to hear you talk through these things because, you know, this is what we've lived through these last few years on top of COVID and, and so much that's happened in our country. Um, you know, when you look back over these last few years from the passing of the traditional plan to where we are now, uh, disaffiliations across the U.S. connection. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but is there anything that you're like, gosh, I wish we could have, I wish that we had, is there anything you wish we had done over these last few years that we've not done? Well, yeah. Of where we started uh, would be the first one for me. Adopting the uh, the restructuring plan that we came up with in 2012 yeah. uh, and uh, somehow fixed what the judicial council broke. Uh, I, I I wish we had been able to do that, and it would make where we are much easier than than what we need to do to get there. It's going to be more painful now than it would have been then. It was sure. it was going to be painful enough then, but it's really going to hurt now. Uh, because going forward, uh, there, there are several things that, we, that are absolutely inevitable that we're going to have to do. We're going to have to regionalize the church. We've already talked some about that. Uh, 
but just as desperately, we're going to need to restructure and somehow reform the episcopacy. It's way we're way too top heavy, and uh, uh, so while we're consolidating the agencies, we're going to have to uh, uh, restructure the episcopacy as well. So those those three things: regionalize the church, uh, consolidate and restructure the agencies uh, uh, part of the church, the connectional part of the church, and uh, restructure the episcopacy, which I think will have to include. Uh, doing away with lifetime election of bishops. And we're going to have to be the same all across the whole church uh, for Episcopal leadership. Um, many of the central conferences already elect bishops for term, and that's the way we're going to have to go for the whole church. So th those are the big three that I see. And I think not only do we need to do that, we need to do that in 2024. Those mm -hmm. three things have to be done in 2024. Had Plan UMC been deemed constitutional or had there been space to get it into compliance, what what would have been in place that could have made all of those things easier to accomplish at this part, at this part, uh, part of our We story? already have fewer general agencies with, uh, with uh, a smaller leadership structure. Uh, and so we wouldn't have to go through that part. And that's the, the main thing. We can't afford what we got. And so we're going to have either either you let it collapse because there's no money there to keep it up or you intentionally go in on a missional basis and restructure and reduce. Hmm. It's, it's, it's going to be one or the other. Right, right. What is General Conference 2020 that will take place in May of 2024, April and May of 2024? What does that space need to be about? The three big things. Making sure that we regionalize the church. Making sure that we have a connectional structure that is nimble enough, small enough, lean enough to go forward in a sustainable way into the future. And the third thing is reform the episcopacy and uh, turn it into a um, a term election for all bishops worldwide. That's what General Conference 2024, 2020, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> you know, those three things. Everything else is peripheral. Hmm. Do you have hope for the future of the United Methodist Church? I do. Yeah, I, I think we're uh, still one of the strongest uh, institutions in the world. And certainly we have a an impact uh, beyond our size. You know, if you measure us against the Catholic Church, you know, half the people of the world are Christian, right? And half mm -hmm. of those are Catholic. So compared to that, we're we're just a flea on the tail of the dog kind of thing. But uh, we make an impact uh, way beyond our size, and I think that we we have the the opportunity to continue that position in the in the fellowship of Christians around the world. Lonnie Brooks, I want to thank you for joining me today. Thank you for sharing so much. Um, I think one of the gifts you bring um, to our church is you make us think. Um, 
And sometimes that is a welcome gift. And sometimes that is, <laughs> as you have said in other parts uh, that might not have gotten recorded, sometimes that's a thorn in the side of, of some of us. Um, but I, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being willing to step into that space uh, in in both agreement and disagreement. Um, I think you really are a partner in holy conferencing uh, that we will continue to need. Um, whether you're actively serving on the floor of a general conference or writing things from, from your home, um, thank you for your work and your witness, Lonnie. Thank you, Derek. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Awesome. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.